0: Welcome to the Patientless Podcast. We discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly about real-world data and AI in clinical research. This is your host, Karim Galil, co-founder and CEO of Mendel AI. I invite key thought leaders across the broad spectrum of believers and descendants of AI to share their experiences with actual AI and real-world data initiatives. Welcome to this episode of Patientless Podcast. Today's guest, Brent Clough, founder and CEO of Trio Health. Thanks for being with us on the show, Brent.
1: Thank you for having me. Look forward to our discussion.
0: Brent started his career in the financial sector. He was actually a VP at Goldman Sachs, and then he founded a very interesting company in healthcare, Intrinsic, which pretty much built the largest longitudinal patient database at the time and was later acquired. Brent is now our co-founder of TRIO, leverages real-world data for commercial and clinical research excellence. And they have very interesting model on how they are capturing data and how they're ensuring the fidelity of the real-world data. TRIO obviously is a very established player in a super crowded space. So I'm very happy to have Brent on the show today to share with us his story of starting TRIO, what is unique about TRIO, and how he sees the real-world data, real-world evidence industry today. But before we get started, I think my first question is, what attracted you to healthcare? I mean, pretty sure it doesn't pay as much as Goldman Sachs, and it's a pretty sophisticated industry. So I would be very interested to hear what was attractive for someone like you to come into healthcare, build a couple of companies, again, in a very crowded spaces.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I did spend the first 16 years of my career in financial services and then switched over to healthcare have now been in healthcare since 2004. So about half my career is in financial services, the half in healthcare. And to answer your question specifically, some friends of mine had invested in a small oncology software and data company called Intrinsic, which is outside of Boston, based on a high profile overdosing death that happened at Dana-Farber. And so the founder actually of Intrinsic was a physician, um, a programmer, as well as, as an attorney. And uh, basically looked at it and said, geez, if this could happen at Dana-Farber in terms of a overdosing death, Jesus must be happening in other areas of the country. And one of his buddies was an oncologist in upstate New York. And so they started Intrinsic really as a safety solution in terms of that to align with the, uh, the way that patients, oncology patients were treated and managed in the early 2000s, which a lot of it was infusion. It was weight-based And so, again, the calculations had to be very precise and specific. And unfortunately, in this situation, the woman that was overdosed and killed, the calculation was incorrect. It was missed by the pharmacists and physicians. So what attracted me was what we were seeing in terms of healthcare, in terms of just the lack of technology and sophistication that was being applied to managing these type of patients and this type of workflow as contrasted to Wall Street that, you know, you could sit on a trading desk and pretty much get information at your fingertips in in virtual seconds. When you contrasted kind of financial services in terms of data and analytics and technology relative to kind of where the healthcare industry was 15, 16 years ago, it was night and day. And so I actually, through some of my friends that were investors, got introduced to the CEO at the time and the founder and ended up striking a, a chord with them in terms of really trying to bring to bear a lot of my knowledge and contacts and relationships and trying to think about how I could be helpful in applying that to the healthcare industry. And so uh, within about 12 months of joining Intrinsic, I was promoted to become the CEO of the company and then ran the company for a number of years. And what we did is we sold our application to over 120 sites across the country with about 700 oncologists, both academic and private practice, for them to safely and better manage their oncology patients. So we had oncology nurses that would go out and train the physicians and so forth. And then in the old days, because the internet really wasn't as prevalent, is we would have the sites effectively phone home once a weekend in terms of transmit over the internet a de-identified file of the patients. And then our analytics and operations team would unpackage that data and put together and build uh, longitudinal records in terms of looking at how these patients were being treated and and again, what their outcomes were. And so it was a really novel time in terms of there's a lot of drugs that were being developed, Herbitux, Avastin, Herceptin, a number of big drugs that are blockbuster drugs were just launching in the early, you know, call it 2004, 2006 period. And so we saw really this transformation in terms of a big bolus of new drugs that were being uh, launched into the market, as well as you had people like Michael Milken that was launching the Prostate Cancer Foundation and what he's done in terms of transforming uh, that disease. And then you had... NCCN guidelines and Bill McGivney, who was starting to build the evidence-based pathways.
0: There wasn't even electronic medical records weren't widely adopted back in the early 2000s.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so it it was an interesting time in terms of, like I said, in terms of like being at the, the beginning part of our early stage in terms of seeing this adoption as well as starting to deploy clinical evidence and pathways to real world patients. And so we formed Trio Health in 2013. And, and like anything in your career, you got to learn from your mistakes. You learn from kind of the shortcomings and said, geez, if we we're going to bring the band back together and do it kind of better, how do we do it? And so we basically took a lot of the knowledge and things that we learned both at our company as well as just from our peers in the industry and, and create Trio Health, which was really principled around building uh, a network in terms of having direct relationships with each of the physician practices as well as all the additional stakeholders that touch the patient. So TRIO actually stands for Physician, Pharmacy and Payer. So we thought of really those three stakeholders as the stakeholders that could impact the performance of a real world patient. And so we developed a technology platform and a business methodology about bringing together all that disparate data so that we could have a kind of 360 view of the patient But then what we also recognize just from a technology platform is the inherent deficiencies of trying to record and collect that information from EMRs and different technology platforms that the stakeholders use that obviously didn't mesh well together, as well as didn't fully uh, encapsulate in terms of all the facets of of that care. So in our technology platform, we had to build a two-way communication so that we could go in and supplement, adjudicate, and validate information that we couldn't get through the nightly file.
0: Looking at your website, you guys are talking about the fidelity of the data that you're collecting in comparison to the current methodologist business or technology methodologist in the industry. At TRIU, how do you guys define how real is the real world data? How do you define how good is the data that you guys are capturing compared to several other players in in, in the industry?
1: Yeah, so I think the way we look at the landscape is I, I think that there's there's really kind of two distinct categories. There's a whole group of companies that are focused on very large databases in terms of looking at hundreds of thousands of it, not millions of, of records in terms of within a specific disease area. And then there's other companies on the other side that look more like a registry or that go much deeper, right, in terms of collecting very specific information on the patient. And so when you kind of look at it, it looks like a little bit like a barbell in terms of people are either on kind of one side uh, of the equation or the other side. And and where we felt as though that we could use both technology as well as almost kind of registry software concept and be a little bit in the middle. And so when we looked at kind of our approach, depending upon the disease coverage, we figured out how could we build a database that had, for example, 100,000 rheumatology patients, yet was really on the other side of the barbell, which was very deep in terms of having pharmacy data, information contained from the office visit notes to labs, to infusions, to kind of all the data that we would want to do. So that's kind of the role and the niche that we, fit, we focus on in terms of really trying to leverage kind of the value of both of those in terms of using technology and nightly files, but then also really almost in terms of the registry, which is getting very specific information on very specific uh, fields that we need relative to kind of what are their objectives for that it's either study or the disease that we're trying to understand and focus on.
0: Uh, one of the things that are really exceptional about TRIU is that you guys have this broad coverage of different therapeutic areas. You guys are working in rare diseases. You guys are working in rheumatology. You guys are working in hepatitis. And that comes with a lot of complexities. How can you train your team to be able to cover all these therapeutic areas? How are you going to also be able to uh, build this model where you're able to attract different providers coming from different kind of specialities and convince them? To share data with you. Can we talk more about that? I find that very intriguing about the, the, the company that you guys have built. there.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So Yuri, who co-founded the company with me, her background was really more on the qualitative side in terms of amassing a very large Rolodex of key opinion leaders within each uh, specific disease areas. So what what's really important in terms of that piece of the business is really, if you think about it, is we start before we enter a disease and we started in hepatitis C with the launch of the new DAs in in late 2013 and 2014. And we started really with developing a scientific steering committee of key opinion leaders that are across the country that were highly respected by their peers, the manufacturers and the payers. And we really use them as our North star to number one, define what is the data that we need to collect on real world patients these were all physicians were treating patients, so it was helpful to have kind of real-time insights in terms of what were they being confronted with on kind of a day-to-day basis as well as the evolution of the disease. The third is that we use the Scientific Steering Committee, as I said, to go out and recruit and to build the network because, again, we build every disease organically in terms of one practice at a time, and we sign a business social agreement in an MSA. The final point that we do is now that we've used the scientific steering committee for kind of their qualitative expertise, and now we get the quantitative data, we can bring those two important pieces of information together, as well as sit on top of a live and active network of physicians that are managing treating patients. So we have the ability to adapt very quickly in terms of to the disease, but also be very responsive in terms of when we start to think about our output. And all of our studies that we've published today, which is in excess of over 120 studies, all have been authored by the scientific steering committees in collaboration with our statisticians and our analytics people. And so when you think about the importance in terms of what is the point of the study and what is its relevancy, you're getting an interesting perspective beyond just an RWD or RWE uh, company in terms of you're really getting the physicians that are being respected and are managing treating the patients. So that when we go to submit these studies to medical conferences they typically are on you know obviously forward thinking and really thinking about in terms of what are the specific issues that physicians and patients are confronting uh, on almost a real-time basis
0: it seems to me like your scientific committee is at a foundation of your business model it's kind of the um, core of the company and you build business processes you build technologies you build different things but the, the very core Your scientific committee is driving the company. I find this to be attractive to a lot of providers and pharma companies, knowing that this is not a tech play, it's a teamwork between clinicians and technologists. How are you able to assemble your scientific committee? I think that's one question. The other is, what's in it for the sites to sign an MSA with you, share their data, and contribute to the registries that you guys are building?
1: Yeah, I think echoing to your point that you just made, it, you know, I, we kind of think of our scientific steering committee as a little bit of the Trojan horse. It really starts and ends with them. Number one, they give us the credibility immediately amongst their peers because, again, they're backing this, they're supporting this. The other piece that is important to note is that we file all of our research as an investigator-sponsored research. Which means that we get sponsorship from manufacturers, but it's really an arm's length transaction so that the authors of the study can't be influenced or tainted. And it really is up to them at the end of the day, in terms of the methodology, the findings, and everything that we come up with the conclusions related to that study. Which I think is important because what it does is it really provides the integrity at all levels in terms of that really facilitates our business model, which is why physicians want to join the network. And in some cases, a lot of the practices join and we don't provide them with any type of honoraria or financial payments, but they're really doing it for what's in the best interest of their patients and for the best interest of care. And so we've been very fortunate in the fact that we can build very large data cohorts in terms of having diversity of academic physicians, private practice physicians, and get the geographic diversity. uh, Because when you look at the leadership of the scientific steering committee and kind of their track record related to their participation in clinical trials and getting the disease state to where it is today, they wanna be part of this. And I think give it a little bit is in terms of giving back in terms of to the patient as well as to promoting in terms of best practices for the patients within that disease state.
0: So these are a proxy between sponsors and clinical research sites where you enable the sponsor to learn from the care of each patient that went through that site in a digital way where you don't have to recruit an actual patient, talk to them, consent them. This is the theme of our podcast is patientless trials. What we mean by patientless Mm -hmm. trials are not necessarily getting the patient out of the equation, it's actually the patient is always in the center of it, but rather than the patient contributing in, in a clinical setting, the patient is contributing in a data setting where they are basically leveraging their data. How do you define patientless trials at, TRIU Health and how do you see, the clinical research industry moving from a very clinical setting centric kind of an approach to more of like a digital centric approach where data is leveraged in many different ways?
1: It's a great question and a complex question. Our objective is to best represent the patient by having the most comprehensive data set that provides the greatest insight. And I think what we're most proud of at Trio Health is a lot of the patient advocacy work that we do. So when we bring all that disparate data together and it's, quote, patientless, meaning, you know, the patient's actually not involved in terms of providing supplemental information, but really catalyzing all that information on that patient. You know, and I've got two examples that I think that we've been very successful about. One is the new hepatitis C drugs transform the disease to, as you probably know, cure rates are exceed almost 90, greater than 95% with a drug that you take once a day for eight weeks with no side effects. And what we found is with our database in terms of the timeliness of the updates in the pharmacy and the clinical data, is we found this huge disparity across the different Medicaid states in the country. And we uh, published a study that received a lot of awards and recognition. It was on over 20,000 patients where we looked across 40 different Medicaid states and we saw that Ohio Medicaid had a 95% denial rate of patients as contrasted to Connecticut that had a 95% approval rating, which is crazy in the fact that we were looking at patients that were cirrhotic that again were not high risk patients in terms of patients that were stereotyped as living under the bridge or being drug users in terms of their quote high risk and what we were finding were these were patients that again you know one woman and we we actually published a book on our website was basically infected with hepatitis c based on a blood transfusion because she was bleeding out during a pregnancy and in those days obviously they had not screened the the blood well enough and So she was tainted with a hepatitis C strain. And so again, what we did is we used that information, we published it, but then we also went to CMS and shared with CMS and manages Medicaid and showing the disparity across the different States and said, this was completely egregious. And in our book, we titled it, is this really the United States of America or the United countries of America? Because how can we be seeing this level of disparity? The second piece that we did in collaboration with NORD, which is a National Organization of Rare Disorders, which is a not-for-profit, is we, in collaboration with the FDA, looked at all for pro bono is how we looked at six rare diseases by which there was a diagnosis for it, yet there was no approved treatments. And so we took all the data that NORD had collected in a registry for their natural history, and we ended up publishing and, and presenting at the respective different conferences around the world. And also published a book around trying to create awareness to the investment community as well as pharmaceuticals and providing more insight in terms of these type of patients to see if there are things in, in the pharma portfolios that could be helpful in terms of being potential solutions. And so, again, you go back to this high-quality data and this kind of patientless concept, and TRIO and our scientific steering committee look and say, how can we get back in terms of helping to promote therapies that are going to improve the quality of care for these different patients, be it natural history where there really is nothing approved and trying to create awareness on the disease, to second, looking at unbelievably transformational drugs in hepatitis C that are still being denied in the United States with massive disparity based on different payers, both commercial payers and my example of the Medicaid states.
0: This was a great example. Disparity is actually something that you cannot capture in a randomized clinical trial in an easy way. I, I love that example. I've also worked on rheumatology registries and uh, you were able to collect longitudinal and comprehensive data. We at Mendel find it very hard to do what you guys are doing because being able to be EMR agnostic is not easy today. And unless you are being EMR agnostic, you have this selective bias where you are biasing your data based on a set of, of research sites or a set of sites that are using a specific EMR vendor while you want to achieve this breadth of sites and you want to be more agnostic, and that's technically not easy. The second challenge we see is a lot of the data actually exists in a non-machine readable formats. 70% of the data today are faxed. The healthcare industry is one of the very few industries that are still using fax as a preferred method of, of communication. We also see a lot of the doctor narrative being indirect, where they're expecting everyone who's going to read this note to be a physician, so they don't have to explicitly describe everything. Those are like some of the challenges. How can you integrate with different EMR vendors? And also, how can you deal with non-machine readable formats like faxes and doctors who are not necessarily explicit or structured in how they describe a patient journey?
1: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely correct. And, and we kind of think of it as three different levels, right? There's kind of the, the, the most basic and common model, which is nightly files. The second is really AI and OCR technology. And then I think the third is, is the good old-fashioned roll up your sleeves with a clinically trained certified person that can remote log in and read chart notes or scan documents or things that obviously don't meet the first two criteria, and really start to put together that patient story or build that mosaic. So you can understand it. And, a an example, you know, that I think in rheumatology to your question is, what every manufacturer wants to know and every payer wants to know is not, you know, we all know what happened, but we want to know why. So when we look at a rheumatology patient and we say, geez, you know, they started on Humira and then they switched over to Zeljans," you know, why did they discontinue Humira? And why did they select, you know, a as a second or third line or fourth line of therapy? And so what we're, you know, we did in terms of, we looked at really using all three levels of that to answer those questions with the third level being, we actually have certified chart abstractors that have been clinically trained to go through and look at entering the discontinuation reason. And what we uncovered specific to rheumatology, which was interesting, is that, a vast majority of the discontinuation reasons is based on patient tolerability, where if you go back to kind of oncologists and they go, geez, this is, this is standard protocol for us to, to manage patients with pain, nausea, diarrhea, rashes, and so forth. And what the rheumatologists are telling us is, you know, we actually don't do a very good job managing patient tolerability. So what we're trying to do is uncover for rheumatology specifically, going back to your question in terms of these three levels is how do we bring this unique insight to help advance the disease? So how could we help physicians understand in terms of the prevalence of a particular category of patient tolerability? And then how could you potentially work with the patient hubs and support paths from the different manufacturers to do almost real-time triage? And so now, you know, if I was gonna discontinue because of a GI abdominal pain, the question is, is there a way to help mitigate that in terms of to keep me on that therapy, yet manage that uh, a derivative or a derived side effect that could be correlated or non-correlated. But at the very least, it's the basis for why there's a switch. And so, again, we think that there's there's a lot of still great opportunities in terms of really taking a comprehensive view in space like rheumatology. There's a lot of entrenched competitors. There's a lot of people that have real-world data, but it's really trying to think about how you creatively look at bringing together all the the resources and capabilities to draw some unique insight to, quote, advance the disease state. And so that would be an example where we're super excited in terms of some of the work that we're uncovering in rheumatology.
0: How did COVID affect Trio? Is COVID a catalyst for real-world data studies, or did it slow down the change towards more data-driven trials? And uh, how, how do you see COVID today affecting the real-world evidence industry?
1: I can't speak on behalf of CROs other than I know the clinical trials have obviously been stalled and it's been a difficult environment. I, I think what's been fascinating, going back to the beginning of our conversation around this kind of barbell strategy around real world data companies in terms of being on kind of the one end of the spectrum. You know, I, I think there's a lot of great work on the large data sets to look at prevalence and looking at different populations in terms of how they're being impacted and what the outcomes are. And then I think if you look at kind of what we're looking at on our on our on the trio health side is is really going down ten or fifteen different levels. So we may only have a database of hundred thousand rheumatology patients, yet you know we're tracking in terms of patients that have been diagnosed with with COVID, and then also measuring and looking at their outcome and having the notes and all those detailed information. And I think the question that we're trying to look at. Is that some of the are some of the rheumatology drugs delaying onset of disease? And it was a webinar that we hosted two or three weeks ago. So we're kind of looking at it in terms of at a very detailed patient level specific function versus there's still a lot of value at the macro level at the Epi side in terms of doing that. So I think as it relates to COVID, it it, it presents a kind of a, a, a unique unique environment in terms of the clinical trial development. But then when you look at the real-world data companies, I think that, you know, real-world data companies have evolved a lot in the last 15 years to, I think they play a very important role, both at kind of the macro level and the micro level, which is going to be highly complementary to helping us solve these type of complex problems that we're uh, confronted with.
0: How do you see pharma companies and how they perceive real-world data? Do you think they perceive it as a vitamin or more of a painkiller? Is it something good to have or something must have? I mean, obviously you have been in leveraging real world data for more than 15 years. So you can see the adoption curve. Are we there yet? Are we at a point where they feel like this is a painkiller or we're still in the vitamin stage?
1: I think we've made a lot of progress. I think the biggest problem with real world data for the last seven years up until the last year or so or two years ago has been the confusion around how to use the data. And understanding that there is no perfect database. And I think that it feels like in the last 12 to 24 months, there's really been a lot of progress made in terms of really kind of ring fencing and understanding within each of the different companies kind of what their capabilities and what are their best use cases are. Creating that level of clarity where we can all add value in some capacity, but understanding where you know, we excel in where our weaknesses are, I think is what's critically important. And I think that's starting to flush out more and more in a, in a more accelerated rate. And I think any time that you get to that level, then I, I do think that you, you know, using your analogy in terms of the vitamin or the painkiller, I think in certain situations, they both exist, right? In terms of it becomes helpful to programs that they're trying to advance internally. And then I think it also becomes necessary or required but again, I think the starting point that we should all be focused on is making sure that our clients understand with complete clarity and, and transparency in terms of the good, bad, and ugly. What what are we good at? What are our deficiencies? And, and what should you not use us for? And I think, I think when we get to that level of transparency is I think it's gonna be obviously best for the entire industry.
0: A lot of our audience are actually executives in the pharma industry. And we always get the question, I have sent an RFP, now I have like 10 vendors and I need to assess where they are to also borrow your analogy on, on the barbell of that. How comprehensive is their data? What are the right questions to ask? That's still, the industry is still trying to figure out what are the criteria or the framework where you can evaluate a vendor and understand where they stand on the breadth and depth of curves when it comes to their data assets. So what would you advise? What kind of questions, if you are a pharma executive today, what kind of questions are you going to ask?
1: Yeah, I feel like the pharma in the industry has evolved a lot in terms of starting to develop those questionnaires and methodology that provides kind of that nowhere to hide for the different vendors or people receiving or responding to those RFPs and at the end of the day. I think it's, at least from the way that we manage our company, we just think it's a mistake to try to misrepresent us because at the end of the day, there's nowhere to hide. And so what you end up is just in a bad situation. And so from our perspective, we welcome the transparency and it's imperative for us to both our clients as well as even our physician partners and networks in terms of making sure they understand what are our goals and objectives and what can we do and what can't we do. In the history of seven, eight years, you know, we we've had to you know, rein back some of our members of our scientific steering committee. to get excited and start talking and say, oh, we can do this, 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 and this. And, and we have to rein them back and say, no, no, we can't do that, right? That's not feasible. I think the, the nice thing is that the industry has evolved to a point where the level of knowledge is there. I think the transparency is now getting to the place where people now understand where they fit um, and what their strengths and weaknesses are. And I think, With transparency, you're going to see a wider adoption and more use cases in terms of how real-world data can be applied across a broader spectrum than even exists today.
0: I want to go back to the scientific committee at TRIO. Explain to me how you guys run that. Do you have like representation of different specialities? Are they a full-time employee of TRIO or they're more of a scientific advisor or consultant? How are you guys able to build that kind of committee and keep them engaged also with the the amount of business that you guys are generating?
1: I would tell you that not one person on our scientific steering committee does it for the money or any type of honoraria. I think that we've always positioned from day one that we have to be the North Star in terms of clinical evidence. We need to pave the way for the disease state in terms of doing really novel and transformational research uh, that provides and sheds new insight that is going to advance the care of patients for that specific disease. So first and foremost, it's really starts and ends with the clinical integrity that we bring to the table, as well as the studies and and methodologies that we bring forth in terms of for each specific disease state. The the second piece is in terms of how do we get them. You know, our goal is always to try to get an oral presentation at a major medical conference. And when you get an oral presentation, as you know, you're the best of the best in terms of your one to 2% of all submissions that make that cut. And so we're very much focused in terms of applying our skill set in terms of the data, but also remember that the knowledge that exists within the active physician network to try to really think about, you know, what are the issues confronting these patients real time and, and how can we look at it from a safety point of view, an efficacy point of view, from different patient cohorts to even, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of looking at access to care around payer denials and so forth. So I think, I think our attraction is, number one, that clinical North Star position, but then to your specific question, each disease state, we have a core of typically five to seven key opinion leaders that serve as the foundation, but we will bring in different key opinion leaders for subspecialty expertise within a disease state. So in hepatitis C, we could have an expert that focuses on the co-infected population, which would be hepatitis C plus HIV, or we could look at uh, physicians that treat high-risk patients based on median income and different zip codes and so forth so that have a lot of different comorbids so for us it's, it's having that foundation in terms of the rigor and making sure that what we're doing is, is clinically sound methodology and so forth but then also recognizing that you know if we're looking at weight gain and hiv based on the aging population we need to bring in some of the top statisticians that can deal with this very complex issue uh, that may be out of the purview of, of our core team. So we have no ego and our scientific steering committee has no ego as it relates to it's only these five people that are the authors of every study. Uh, it's really about how do we best position that analysis that we think is incredibly important in terms of that topic so that we can get to that you know oral presentation level at that medical conference and to create the greatest awareness and the greatest impact is really always been our focus.
0: You guys are not only leveraging real world data, you're leveraging the clinical integrity of the clinicians and the scientific community. And I find this very, very intriguing. Another question I have, I wanna see from your perspective, what is the good, the bad and the ugly of AI in healthcare? Where are we today? What are the challenges? What are we good at? What we're not yet good at when it comes to AI? Why are you still using human abstractors? I mean. Obviously, you see a, a lot of AI companies saying, listen, we have the best AI out there, but still the industry are at a point where almost every real world data company has a core human operation at the very core of its DNA. Why? What's the good?
1: What's the- It's a great point. And back in 2004, I actually hired a number of data scientists and we built machine learning algorithms to predict and see if we could help in terms of market share and understanding a number of different oncology products that we we're developing for a suite of clients it was interesting because you you know you, you learn from direct experience and and so i go back and i would say to the ai companies and ocr the same thing that you would say back to me as a real world data company which is what is the best use case of your platform in terms of the data and the assets and the capabilities of your team uh, and don't misrepresent yourself and i think that again generically speaking, I think a lot of AI companies said, look, we can solve the world's problem um, and do it very well. And we can solve we can we can basically be a solution for everything. And I think we all know that AI companies can't be a solution for everything, but they can play a very, very important role in terms of different aspects. And if I go back and look at rheumatology, it may be difficult for AI company to go through and read notes to the level of a clinically trained person that has to put together Lots of different disparate data. And I'm not saying that AI can't get to it, but then I look at, you know, looking at a physician, a uh, patient global assessment form, I look at MD Hack, I look at different things, and I go, geez, that AI company would be terrific in terms of a whole bunch of different capabilities that they could be accretive to for Trio Health and other companies. But I think it goes back to defining, as I say, your swim lane in terms of where you can best apply AI. And some of the proprietary technologies that the AI companies have developed in making sure that you kind of stay within that swim lane and not overstep your bound. No different than, I would say, the same advice to Trio Health, which is, what are we good at? What are we not good at? And where should you go to potentially one of our competitors or a different vendor to answer those questions or to you know, uh, solve
0: that? You guys use a lot the term FDA level, which is basically refers to a data set that can be okay or meets the benchmarks that the FDA has for in- or data integrity. When it comes to AI, have you been successful to make any FDA submission using AI only, or is it always has to include some sort of a human curation layer on top of your data processing techniques?
1: Yeah, so it's a great question. And actually we just signed a partnership with Greenleaf Health last year that is a regulatory advisory group in Washington DC and they're all former executives of FDA and spent a long time there. And, and again, where we look at our collaboration with them as being the regulatory experts in terms of knowing what is really regulatory great data. Everyone talks about it, it's a widely used term, but at the end of the day, what, what does it really mean? And we look to Greenleaf, our partnership with Greenleaf as really being the experts since they sat in the chair at FDA for a good chunk of their careers. And so I would tell you very simply for us, I use this term ability to validate, adjudicate, and to supplement. And so, if I can represent back to Greenleaf or to FDA in terms of the source of every data field, how I received it, who gave it to me, how did I verify it, and so forth, it is part of that process that we do. And I think that, again, we have not had any direct experience yet in terms of using AI in terms of as a submission or quote, regulatory grade, but I, I believe. Just because we haven't done that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And I think that there clearly is a role. And I think it's just, again, for the agency to understand in terms of the process and methodology, no different than developing a research SOP in terms of the analytics SOP, which is, okay, you've got a highly curated data set. And then how did you transform it You know, based on your statistics and approach and methodology and documenting that process? and And I think AI... It should and would be an important component of that as long as, as the agency can understand the methodology, the process, and, and exactly how you transformed it or got to the conclusions that you did.
0: Which is very challenging because a lot of the AI techniques today are based on deep learning, which is not really self-explanatory systems. It's very hard to explain how was the outcome generated. And I think this is a very challenging AI companies in healthcare have to figure out is How can you use AI techniques that are still able to explain how they are able to come to these conclusions? But that's a great point that we need to be able to explain things to achieve this FDA level acceptance.
1: Look, from my previous experience with the data scientists and machine learning, they uncovered some really interesting patterns and trends that obviously we didn't uh, uncover in terms of just with all our analytics team. And and so if if you look at that as as really the starting point in terms of then using the rest of the process to then manually go through and verify that, I I still think AI can be very informative in terms of spotting things, in, in terms of early detections and uncovering things that haven't been detected yet and doing it in a very efficient way versus kind of a human effort. And then the question is, can you couple that with the human efforts as a backstop to go through and verify In terms of bearing out that trend or bearing out that evidence that the ai company came up with
0: i agree the the machine has to help the human but it's not in a position to replace the human i think this is one of the things actually that we strive to do here at mandel is we try to always build machines that can truly help a human abstractor or a clinician rather than try to replace the clinical role there we are at wide adoption when it comes to the adoption curve of real-world data and real-world evidence And I was wondering, how do you see 2025 from that perspective? Are you seeing more budgets allocated for real-world evidence? Is it going to be matching the budgets that are allocated for traditional clinical research? Are you going to see clinicians basing a lot of their clinical judgments on evidence that are created from real-world evidence? Are you going to see payers now finally adopting value-based contracts, or are you still think that 2025 is not going to be where we hit that point of wide adoption.
1: I think we've made tremendous progress in the last 12 to 18 months in terms of, and I go back to my earlier point, and, and I think for us as an as a industry to move forward, we have to have the transparency and the confidence behind it to understand how we can best utilize real-world data and real-world evidence. And, and I think once you have that transparency and you have that understanding I think then the opportunities in terms of really open up, right? So you're now starting to see a lot of the buzzwords around value-based contracts, value-based contracting. That becomes the kind of the next iteration based on real-world evidence. I think as it relates to clinical trials, you're starting to see the FDA opening up and being more receptive in terms of trying to understand what are some of the use cases that make sense from their perspective. And so you're seeing you know, expanded labels, you're seeing synthetic arms, you're seeing a whole bunch of different things that that are now starting to permeate within our business units. And, and I think there's a lot of exciting things. I think you're going to see a massive amount of changes uh, between now and 2025. But I would go back to that change and that adoption has got to have the clear understanding and transparency to know, Kind of the good bad and ugly and once you understand that then you can apply it so it could be more precision around clinical trial recruitment which is speed and certainty it can be getting better data so you're seeing now disparate data being linked together right so you're getting more of a complete record on the patient be it from their primary care physician to their rheumatologist to their infusions especially pharmacy and so forth which is again great but that in isolation, I don't think solves the problem, right? Because there's still the the AI component and there's still the other component, which is the human element, which is I just, I got to go back to the physician and I have to have him certify or verify that what I'm seeing is actually true and it makes sense. And and I think the combination of all three of those and how those are stitched together, really exciting in terms of, I think we're now in the the growth cycle or the growth curve of our industry in terms of, of the different use cases that we can develop and that can be applied between now and, and 2025.
0: My last question, if you can zoom any living person today, who would it be and why?
1: Great question. You know, this may sound off topic, but probably the person that comes to mind is Richard Branson and and the reason I bring up Richard Branson is. I've never talked to him. I've only read articles about him, but it, but it, he's built companies that align with his personality, it feels like. And so it seems pretty amazing that you can be a serial entrepreneur and, and your whole theme is based on aligning with what seems to be his personality in terms of the way that he approaches a market and yet professional way that immediately attracts people. It would be super cool to meet someone that, he's built his professional career around his personality
0: it's very interesting you're inspired by leaders who are true to their personalities this is a great example of a ceo who has a culture consistent through the way right like the company the ceo they're all about the same thing is how can we be true to ourselves to the data and to the industry and also to the clinical community richard branson is a great kite surfer so I I think as a good start, we need to get you on the board, <laughs> have you here in the Bay Area and get you started on that. Hey Brent, thank you so much for your time today. I think uh, you shared with us great examples. I love the disparity example that you gave about this patient with hepatitis, and I think this is an awesome use case for Readword evidence. I also really really got got inspired with your scientific committee and how you're able to build solid science, but still have a tech and business processes to support that. Again. Thank you so much for your time. All the best for you, for your family, and for uh, Trio. Stay safe, and uh, I hope to see you soon.
1: Likewise, and thank you so much for inviting me. I really uh, enjoyed our conversation today.